Welcome to the Run Run Live 4.0 podcast, where we plumb the daily adventure of endurance sports. Let us seize this precious moment together and squeeze the life from it like a golden lemon sent to us fresh today from the emissaries of the gods. Terribly happy guy Then he ate a moldy pumpkin pie Then he thought that he just couldn't die So Ned, he laughed so hard and made him cry Made him Hello and welcome to the Run Run Live podcast, episode 4-384. How are we doing? So it looks like spring is finally arriving up here in New England. I was out in the woods this week doing a little slow trail running with Buddy, the very old wonder dog. And you can feel nature getting ready to explode. Buddy's Buddy's getting pretty slow, but, you know, I wait for him to catch up. He does okay. He even breaks into a run every once in a while. So it hasn't greened up yet, but it will towards the end of this month. The ground is wet, and the snow is mostly gone, and even the mud smells fecund in its dormancy. You can just feel it getting ready to explode. There's a lot of trees and branches down from all the uh, nor'easters that we had in the last month. So I might go for a walk with Buddy today and bring my axe with me to clear some of the, the deadfall off the trail. That'll be a fun a fun taper exercise. My wife is always telling me I shouldn't walk around or drive around with an axe. And I'm not sure I understand the safety concern, you know? <laughs> I don't really know, right? I mean, I was sharpening my axe last week and I wondered how many people in the world still know how to sharpen an axe, right? Such an ancient thing. We humans have been rubbing stones against metal for a few thousand years. And yes, the dog is still alive, and I'm still alive, and the woods are coming alive. Today, we have a great story for you. I talk with Stephanie, who decided to become a runner the day the bombs went off in Boston five years ago. From that emotional beginning, she'll be running her first qualified Boston Marathon this year on that anniversary. Compelling stuff. In section one, I'll talk about active tapers. And in section two, I'll talk about hope and emotional intent. Yes, I'm a little more than one week out from my 20th Boston Marathon. And if you want to follow me, my number is 18051. Solidly in the mid-pack with a 333 qualification time. It looks like we're going to be getting good weather, though. 50s and overcast. This might be one of those good years. You never know in New England. And I'm in my taper. And this week still has a few quality workouts in it. But next week, I'm sure we'll be shutting it down. My weight's pretty good. My fitness is good. 
got a little piriformis hamstring thing going on in my left leg, but I'm working through it. All in all, I guess I don't have any excuses, right? So, my friends, yeah, next week. And I think racing is a microcosm of life, right? You have to find that knife's edge between too little and too much, between too fast and too slow. It's a balancing act. You can picture yourself walking along that mountain ridge, and maybe there's snow and ice, and it's uh, it's a little windy there, and it drops off into the depths precipitously on both sides. But we have trained. We know how to walk the edge with confidence and aplomb. On with the show. It is when we learn to leave our comfort zone that we find ourselves communing with our inner strength. Coach, why am I running speed work in my taper? The concept of the active taper. Let's define that. So a great fallacy around tapering in the amateur athletic community is that it's some sort of relaxation period. Two or three weeks where you lay on the couch, you sip Gatorade while waiting for your race to roll around. This is not true. The taper period is where you consolidate gains from your training. This is, yes, partly through resting, but also through fine-tuning and staying active. Like everything else in amateur endurance sports, your taper is going to be specific to you. The way you construct and execute your taper is going to depend on your training cycle and how you responded to it as an athlete. And depending on your current fitness, your ability level, your recovery needs, your taper is going to sit somewhere on that spectrum between do-nothing, the myth, and the hard-training mistake. One of the big questions that runners always ask, and going into a marathon taper, they say, how long should my taper be? And, you know, the quick answer is the common length of a taper is two weeks. And this means your last hard training week or your peak week culminates on the weekend 14 days or so before your target race. Younger, more responsive athletes may be able to get away with less than two weeks. I've done it when I was younger and still recover well enough to race. Older runners and back of the packers may take three or four, a month taper. And the truth is that if you have executed an honest training cycle, you've accumulated most of your fitness by the time you get into that last month. Typical race training cycles have you doing race-specific fine-tuning work in the final third of the training cycle. I've seen many runners perform very well in their target races, even though they had to step back in the final weeks due to an injury or some other sort of challenge. You really don't lose that much. What kind of intensity and volume should you be doing during these taper weeks? That's a great question. And this depends on how much intensity and volume you've been doing in your training cycle. You take whatever you've done in your training and you do about 60% in week two and maybe 50% or 40% in week one, meaning minus two and minus one as you approach the race. The profile of the training is similar, but the volume is less. For example, if you have been doing consistent speed and tempo training during the training cycle, your coach will give you the same cadence of speed and tempo, just in less volume. And this doesn't add to your fitness, but it does keep your legs fresh for the race. You recruit those same racing muscles, 
but you don't overstress them. This concept of active recovery, it may seem counterintuitive at first. Why do speed and tempo when you're in your taper? Isn't the taper all about resting? Yes, of course, you're resting and recovering, but if you've trained well, you benefit from and recover better with the activity during the taper. It's sort of a natural fit-for-use way of easing into the recovery. If you just cut off all activity abruptly, your body won't respond well. You'll feel sluggish, and your legs will have no pop on race day. If you execute the proper active recovery that matches your training cycle, you will sharpen that knife's edge of race fitness. You'll feel like a coiled spring on race day. Another factor to consider in how active you should make your taper is how well your body handled the training cycle. What kinds of aches and pains, niggles and nags are you bringing into the taper with you? If you have some acute hot spots, you probably want to avoid the hard stuff and stick to lower impact, lower activity. And there's nothing worse than tweaking something right before your target race. How much experience you have will impact how well you handle that taper. If you have been racing for years and have accumulated a big base of fitness, you probably don't need to worry too much about the strictness of your taper. Just keep it within reason. Don't do anything stupid. If you're a newbie to the taper, you know, be cautious. Avoid anything new. Err on the side of going easy on yourself. A big mistake people make, myself included, is to use that extra time during the taper to do something useful, like rake the yard or paint the house. If you have executed a good training cycle, then you have necessarily gotten very specific in your fitness. Focusing on intense marathon training for a few months, incidentally, can make you quite fragile in unrelated physical activities. Yes, you're in great race shape, but that doesn't mean you can go water skiing or build a stone wall. Likewise, resist the urge to start any cross-training activity that you haven't been doing as part of your normal training. The unheralded part of the taper is everything outside the physical training. The part of the taper that many athletes forget is this, and this includes preparing your mind and working on your nutrition and enhancing your flexibility. For the mental part of your preparation, I would recommend any version of meditation or prayer you're comfortable with. Do it daily during your taper. Especially if you're new to the taper, it can be mentally exhausting, and you need to energize your mind to be able to deal with it. Along with the meditation, you can do visualization, right? Place that perfect race in your head. Play over how you will respond to challenges. Work out your contingencies. Preview that race in your head. Get comfortable with it. Tapering makes neurotics out of all of us. One way to ease this neurosis is to prepare. Control what you can, you can control. Lay out your race gear. Double check your checklists. Procure and prep all your nutrition for race weekend. Get your final logistics sorted out. Get a haircut. Cut your toenails. Do any foot care you need to do a few days ahead of time. And included in this neurosis category is the concept of dry runs. If you can run the last few miles of the course during your taper, that will help you visualize the finish. And you can dry run your packing and your travel as well. Whatever it takes to get that stuff out of your mind and help your mind be 
at ease. You may not be able to sleep, but the taper is a fantastic time to catch up on sleep. There's some great guided sleep meditations that you can get that'll help you clear your mind for sleep. You can also make it a habit of keeping a list or a gratitude journal before going to bed. Now, personally, having raced over 60-something marathons in the last 20 years, I don't waste a lot of energy in my taper anymore. I feel a great sense of relief to be past the hard part of the training, and I'm excited for the tests that come and a little sad that it's over. If you have trained well, you will have to do something truly stupid during your taper to ruin your race. And the best strategy is to keep doing what you've been doing, just do less of it, and ease into that race with an active recovery. And now for today's featured interview. I read your story because people introduced themselves, and I loved your story, so I wanted to share it with the folks here. So why don't you give me sort of the 200 words or less on who you are and what you do and how we got to this conversation. Sure, yeah, 200 words or less. I'll try to keep it that short. Let's see see how we do. In that group, we share stories about why we run or how we got started running or various things like that. And the story that I shared was how my running journey started. And my running journey started actually the day of the Boston Marathon bombings. And that's the day that I decided to become a runner. And a little bit of a unique story, I guess. I mean, everybody has a reason for running. And mine really developed out of that tragedy, I think. And it was one of a great thing to come from a bad day, I guess is the way you might say it. You're not the only one in that group. There's another gentleman I saw that had a similar story. Like that was the day he decided to run the Boston Marathon. So it's interesting how deeply those events touch the psyche of people in Boston. You're from Absolutely. the area, you're, you know, I was in the race, but you're from the area, you're a runner. It really touched everybody deeply. It really and did, I, yeah. Yeah, I guess I wasn't anticipating the impact that that event had on me. Kind of looking back over the last couple of years, it had a major impact on me and completely changed my life in a lot of different ways. I, yeah, having grown up in the area, I grew up, you know, going to the Red Sox games, Bruins games, Watching the marathon, watching the marathon growing up was kind of a a big deal because it was just a a day off and a big party day. (laughs) I was never a runner up until the actual event of the bombings, but I was a competitive swimmer when I was younger, so I enjoyed competition and I enjoyed the competitive aspect of the race, but I I was never really into the running part of it. And actually, the year of the bombings, um, when I decided I wanted to become a runner and or try running, I should say, (laughs) at that point. Running wasn't something that I ever thought I would do. It's never something that I'd done before, but I got inspired and felt compelled to try it. And um, let's see, so five years ago, we had moved out here, my husband and I, to Las Vegas, and so I was watching the race on TV, And um, which I, if I couldn't be physically at the race, I always watched it on TV, just because it's a fun thing to watch. When the race was over, and on TV, you can only see the elite runners, so you don't get to see everybody else that's racing and running that day, so... Turned the TV off, and shortly after that, got a phone call from my mom in tears, just frantic, saying that something really, really bad had happened. Sorry, I still get choked up. <laughs> it's kind of, um, okay. yeah, I apologize. I, uh, it's been a minute to catch my breath. Um, it was such an impactful day, I think, to so many people. And if you grew up watching the marathon, or if you had any connection, I think, in New England, you were impacted by what happened. And um, my brother was running that day, and my dad and his wife, uh, my brother's wife, were at the finish line. So 
So when my mom called me and said, turn the TV back on, something really, really bad has happened. I was just almost in shock, just watching as the news unfolded of what happened. And then it was just the, what felt like hours of trying to connect with my family and making sure everybody was okay. And I think, as you know, <laughs> the phone systems went down, communication was pretty limited going in and out of the city. But for whatever reason, Facebook Messenger <laughs> was working great. And that's how I was able to connect with my brother's wife and learn that she and my dad were okay. They had been near the finish line area. My brother that year was running for the Liver Foundation. He was a charity runner. He years ago had a liver transplant, so he was running in support of them. And he had kind of fallen off his pace in the hills, and they knew that he might finish. His finish would take a little bit longer. So they decided to go from the finish line area and go around the corner to the family meeting area for the Liver Foundation. And my brother, so anyway, I, I was able to talk with them and learn that they were okay, but they still hadn't heard from my brother. It took a while to hear um, anything that he was okay and all of that. He was happened to be one of the first runners that got stopped in the group of runners that got stopped when the bombs went off. And yeah, um, yeah I'll never so he, ever forget he was, them. He was probably right next to me because I had a horrible day that day and ended up walking. Yeah. And uh, yeah. I was right in that front row as well. Okay, yeah, so you, you're probably right there in that same group. Yeah, and, and I'll never forget the moment I got the message from his wife saying, he's okay, he's okay, he's okay. And that's what still chokes me up, <laughs> you know, just the, the moments of not so knowing. How did you, how did you and, cross the bridge from that emotional moment to saying, here's something I want to yeah. do? Yeah, so... That trauma to purpose. Yep, coincidentally at the time, we, my husband and I had moved to Vegas, and I had recently retired. And I was looking for some kind of change in my life that would be healthy of some sort. I wanted to do something. I was very, very overweight and very sedentary. And I had had a, a job for 25 years that was a very sedentary job. And I never really felt bad, but I didn't feel good. And I knew that I wanted to do something to feel better. So I had tried a couple of, you know, workout DVDs and like nothing was really clicking. But for whatever reason, that year when I was watching the marathon on TV, it wasn't just Patriots Day and a day off from work and a day of partying and a day of just watching the competition. I, for whatever reason, I had honed in on like the athleticism of the elite mm -hmm. runners and watching that. And there was just something about that that was like, hmm, I would love a body like that. I would love to be able to <laughs> run like that or do something like that, you know, just move in some way that that's just so graceful, you know, and, and just and bring movement to my life. Honestly, I was just fat and lazy and, uh, and very sedentary. So I knew I wanted to do something to be healthy. And I think the events of that day, I was kind of honing in on what I wanted to do. The events of that day were so personal. I mean, I think anybody who's connected to Boston just felt it. It wasn't just Boston. It was our city, my city that got attacked. And it was a very personal attack. And so it made me think, well, maybe running is something that I should try. I kind of watched as the news unfolded and um, the way that the running community wrapped their arms around the city and the whole world really wrapped their arms around the city. It was just such a cool thing to watch and, and to watch how, how the running community responded. And I thought, I want to be part of that. And that's where I decided I'm all in. I'm going to be a runner. So, <laughs> and I but felt not like just that. I mean, you could have taken, done the charity route and gone out and run. I could but have, you, yeah. didn't. you became a runner and did the work yep. and came back to qualify. And that takes, if you're starting from scratch like you were, it's typically not a 14-week program. It's a couple of years, yeah. if not more. Yep. So, yeah. so that's not just a whim. That's like a two- or three-year commitment to get there. Yeah, there was nothing in me that wanted to run the Boston Marathon. I just wanted to run. And I don't know if I was running away from the trauma of that day or running toward running or running toward something. 
I didn't have any aspirations of actually running the Boston Marathon. That was like a, that's huge. (laughs) That was something I never, ever thought I could do. And as I talked with my um, brother, who had been running for a few years, he's run Boston twice now, he really encouraged me around getting started with running and just focusing my goal on getting out the door and just trying it. And so for the first couple of weeks, that's what I did. And the very first day, I'll never forget, I set a date when I was going to start, went out, got a new pair of sneakers, headed out the front door and got about 20 feet where I was like, what the hell? Nope, not doing this. This is hard. <laughs> but I was also 90 pounds heavier than I am now. And it was really hard. Everything took effort and, um, and a large amount of effort. And, uh, you know, even walking at that point was taking effort. But he kind of kept me focused and it gave me some direction and encouraged me to sign up for a 5k race. And that became my goal. The marathon was never my goal in the beginning. I have to be honest with you. Like that was, even though I was compelled by the events of 2013, running a marathon was never, ever something I I wanted to do, thought I would do. I just wanted to be part of the community, but he got me to my first 5k and your first 5k was like a 41 minute 5k. (laughs) Which, uh, which means you, which means yeah. you walked a lot of that 5K, right? I, I did. I walked a ton of that 5K, and boy, I was so anxious about it, and I was exhausted. I slept the rest of the day after that race. But there was something that happened that day that just kind of encouraged the drive, and I just wanted more, and I wanted better. And I thought, if I can do that my very first time, I know I can do it better the next time. And that became the drive kind of moving forward. Yeah. And you were hooked. You did the typical trajectory, 5K, 10K, half marathon, and then then you're in, right? I did. Yeah. So my my 10K and half marathon, my first ones were actually in Boston. I came back from Las Vegas three times that year. My brother had encouraged me to sign up for the BAA distance medley, which 5K, I thought, no problem. It's hard, but I can do it. That distance at that time was incredibly hard for me. And I thought, well, 10K, I can train a little bit for that and maybe I can pull that off. And holy heck, what was I thinking? Half marathon? I can never do a half marathon. That's insane. (laughs) So I actually had, had joined up with a local running club here and the coach of that running club, I talked with him and he took me on as a client and I got to work and boy, I trained for 20 weeks, I think for that half marathon, (laughs) but the distance medley itself, I don't know if you've ever done that or not, but the distance medley is an awesome experience. I've run the BA half. I actually ran it its first year and we ran through uh, Fenway Park. Ah, fantastic. The first year. (laughs) We ran around the outfield. That was kind of cool, but that's a pretty, uh, that's pretty, it's all parks. People don't think of that in the city, but it's all parks. Yeah, yeah. Uh, That triad of races, I'll never forget, that was probably the most impactful part of my training that got me to where I am today. I think being able to come into the city 2014, a year after the bombings, run the 5K with my brother, and then watch him race that day, the energy in the city was electric that weekend. I was so glad to be able to be part of that and um, to be able to be there. Oh, just amazing, marathon, you know, and watching the Meb. Marathon was in, yeah, the marathon oh. was incredible that year. It was. It, it just was. And you just, if you weren't a runner at that point, you wanted to be because, I mean, it was just amazing. And I don't know about you. I have a hard time even putting words to what the energy in the city was that weekend. It was just, just amazing. Yeah. But it was all positive, and so the, you know. It was, it, it was very absolutely. positive. It was very, very uplifting and positive and celebratory. So, it was, yep, uh, yeah, that was a great time. Yeah, yeah. It it was just, um, yeah, absolutely fantastic. So I came back in the summer and I ran the 10K with my brother and my dad. And um, that was one of the most important races, I think, for my dad. He, as traumatized as I might sound during this interview, (laughs) um, 
really my whole family was feeling that. And he, my brother obviously came back to make it to his finish line that year. But my dad, for that 10K, he couldn't run a marathon or a half marathon. Older guy, but he does like to run. And we went at his pace. I think we were doing a, a solid 1530 for that 10K being followed by the the sweet vehicle or the bikes, you know, at the end. But it brought closure for him, and that was really important, and that was great. But then came the half marathon, and boy, I trained and trained and trained. I knew, I think the cutoff time was like 2.30, and at the time, I had just started running. I was not a fast runner, but I did everything in my power to make sure that I could make that cutoff time and uh, came in at a solid 2.41. <laughs> so I did not make the, the supposed cutoff time, but I was in the park or in the zoo and then the park with enough time to spare that, that um, luckily they didn't shut the course down. <laughs> but um, yeah. So what I, I like about I that, that race, race. Is, you, is you see the elites coming back towards you on the other side of the yep. barrier. Did you see that? And these guys, like a whole herd of BAA kids running 430s coming the other direction. It's kind of cool. Right. Yeah. Yep. Well, I'll tell you, I vowed after that half marathon I would never, ever do another one. That took so much effort and felt so impossible and the anxiety around that race just consumed me. But yeah, um, that sounds like a lot sleep, of that. Would, sounds like a lot of that was in your head as opposed to oh. physical <laughs> barriers, right? Which people don't realize yeah, how much of, of marathoning, half marathoning, and frankly qualifying is yep. in your head, right? Once I did it once, it was like, okay, I can do this. I've always been able to qualify when I wanted to since then. Yeah, yeah. Because I know I, it's possible. I'm a firm believer in whatever you tell your brain, your body will do. And you believe whatever you tell yourself. But to get to the starting line in Hopkinton with a qualification, you don't have to just learn how to run more. You need to learn how to run right. faster. So how did you, yep. Because you had to take a significant amount of time, like an hour off sure. your half marathon time to get into Boston. How yep. did you get there? Yep. And I did that. Um, I spent a couple of years just focused on half marathon. After that experience in Boston, running my first one, where I swore I would never do it again, the very first thing I did was sign up for my next one. <laughs> and that's how it works, right? <laughs> and, yeah. Uh, yeah, I just felt this, this this relentless determination to get better and faster. It was a distance that was not so monumental that I couldn't do it. It was a distance that with, I think, training and guidance around my training, I knew I could get better and faster. I knew I had whatever it took, I don't know what you want to call it, that determination, that grit, that internal combination of passion and persistence. I've got that toward everything I do in life. And uh, I definitely had that when it came to uh, running that half marathon and thinking, okay, how can I get better? And at this point, I still, my eyes were not on running a marathon. When I headed down the pathway of trying to improve myself, Definitely still not in my view. I just wanted to get better at the half marathon and get faster and faster and faster. And every race, every race I did, I got faster. PR'd, you know, every single race. At some point that stops, <laughs> but it was great when it was going on. And I had training weeks where I would average probably uh, between 40, 50 miles a week, 30 to 40 miles a week, depending on I'd run kind of solid three weeks and then a nice recovery week. And I was in a nice pattern like that. Nice yeah. mix of tempo runs, fartlek runs, speed work, long distance runs right. or the long run Saturdays and, and recovery. I think yeah. recovery runs are the most crucial ones that people like to blow off because they don't seem like they mean anything. To me, those are the most important ones. But Even though I'm good, gaining speed through the others. Yeah, I mean, yeah. you were doing it right, right? You had a real training plan, yeah. and you were going through cycles yeah. and doing the speed and the tempo and the long and the recovery yeah. and the cross training. So it sounds like yeah. you had some good direction. So yeah. how how'd you end up uh, deciding to take a run at Boston? Well, so funny. We actually had a party at our house uh, one evening and a bunch of running friends. And uh, I have all of my, my medals displayed 
and I had the distance medals displayed and a couple of my friends were standing around talking with my coach and they're like, oh, you should do Boston. You should do Boston. And, and even in that moment, I thought, oh, there's no way. Well, maybe. I don't know. I'm getting faster. I'm getting better. Maybe. Um, and that was probably the, the turning moment where I actually started seriously thinking, maybe I should do that. So I had a conversation with my coach and I said, you know, 2018, I think I'd like to shoot for that to try to run Boston because that's the fifth year anniversary of the bombings. I turned 50 a week before the race and it just kind of brings my whole running journey full, full circle. And so I talked with him about being a charity runner because I do believe strongly in the charity component of the Boston Marathon. I think it's just such an amazing, uh, my brother is a charity runner. Um, there's just an amazing amount of money raised for fabulous causes. He immediately said, absolutely not. You're going to qualify. You have what it takes to qualify. You have what it takes inside you. We can get your speed where it needs to be. You, you need to qualify. And so I thought, okay, you're my coach. I'll listen to you. The last couple of years previous, I had done everything that he told me to do. And I listened to everything that he instructed me to do. And, and he got me faster and faster and faster. So um, I figured he couldn't be so wrong much, about that. So what were you about 18 months out, two years out? When I today? decided to do that. Um, yeah. When you started training that was, to qualify. Yep. That was probably, let's see, my qualifying race was last May. So yep. I was about 16, 18 weeks out from that. So yeah. So 18 months. Yeah, that's that's good because yeah. you had the base yeah. from all that yeah. training you've been doing and you just needed to, yeah. that must have been a pretty intense training cycle to get ready for that first qualifying marathon. It was, it was. I think not, not just the intensity of marathon training itself. I mean, I was in a very nice routine in terms of the types of runs I was doing and the amount of miles and it was a pretty easy shift training wise for that component. But getting my mind ready was a whole different thing because that whole training cycle was living inside of a pressure cooker. I wasn't just running my first marathon. I was running my marathon with the intent to qualify. And I truly believed that, um, I, well, and I still do, <laughs> marathon distance is really not a great distance for me. It's not the distance that I love. And so I didn't want to be, a, you know, this kind of multiple marathon or a multiple, I don't know how you say it, but, you know, a lot of people will run multiple marathons in an attempt to qualify for Boston because Boston is the end goal. My end goal was, this year, April 2018, and I was going to run, run one race to get there. And if it didn't happen, it wasn't meant to be. And if it happened, fantastic. And the type of person that I am, I dug into that determination and drive and that inner grit and just I did everything that I needed to do, everything possible that I could do to get myself there to that starting line for that marathon. But I was not going to do multiple attempts. And I knew that going into it. So I, so, I was living so the, in a pressure cooker. <laughs> so the Mountains to Beach Marathon sounds like a downhill marathon. It is. There's, there's, it's a net downhill. There's a couple of uphills kind of midway and then toward the end. So it's, it's not a straight downhill. Say, it's, yeah, it's not straight loss. downhill. Yeah, point to point. Yeah. 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 So but how'd you beautiful, do? Did you, beautiful did, course. And, did you hit the wall hard at the end or was it a <laughs> steady state? How'd the last six this, miles go? Yeah, it was an interesting race. I've never been more ready for anything in my life. Like I said, yeah. I did everything I needed to do during my training, and I stepped up to that start line ready to go. There was no question in my mind that this was it. I had it. This was my day. The stars were aligning. Ultimately, with a marathon or really any race, you can control your nutrition, your hydration, your level of effort, but pretty much everything else is out of your control. Um, you can't control yeah. the weather. You can't control any of that stuff. So uh, luckily, you, you pray the stars align, and luckily that day they did, and the gun went off, and... The first 10 miles were excellent. I was right on pace where I needed to be, felt great, felt fabulous. 
And then, like we mentioned before, the mind is a very, very strong thing. And, um, and that started kicking in. And I think living in that pressure cooker through my training cycle of knowing this was it, this was the only race I was doing to make this happen, my brain started taking over in ways that were not great. By mile 13, uh, my body started just rejecting any fuel of any kind. And I thought, well, that's not going to be good (laughs) from everything I've heard. But you you do what you got to do. And I just, I kept on going and took in water, um, every single water stop, I think, because that was the only thing I could seem to take in without throwing up or dry heaving. And I watched the 350 pacer go by, which was where, you know, my sights were kind of set on trying to, to come in around 350 and have a good cushion. We know now from um, experience that you, you can't just qualify. You've got to have that acceptance time uh, window as well. Anyway, I watched that pacer go by and, and thought, oh, okay, just stick with it, just stick with it. And uh, the last handful of miles were grueling. I remember feeling very, very good around mile 16. I thought, okay, I'm good. I'm back in it. Awesome. Yeah. And uh, yeah. mile 18, <laughs> tried to... I had to take another gel in, promptly threw it up and thought, okay, well, just got to get to the finish line. <laughs> Honestly, by mile kind of 22, 23, I thought, forget it. I don't care if I go to Boston. Forget it. Who cares? <laughs> you know, yep. you kind of get yep. to this point of like, just get me to the finish line. <laughs> and then about a mile out from the finish, I remember looking behind me and they have uh, the pacers for this marathon set up around some of the qualifying times. So it's not just the typical five-minute intervals, they actually have some qualifying time pacers. And anyway, I remember turning around and seeing that the 357 was about, I don't know, a quarter mile behind me, and I could see them coming up on me, and I thought, hell no, that is not going to happen. This pacer is not going by me, because if they do, that means I've lost, I've already lost the window I was looking for. I wanted 10 minutes out, five minutes if I could do it, and I'd already lost that, and I thought, no, I'm not letting this 357 pacer pass me, and kicked it into gear and hauled my butt to the finish line and uh, came in, gosh, I think I had right around three minutes and 30 seconds to spare. I qualified, so I met the goal. And I had that moment of, oh my gosh, yeah. Had the moment when I crossed the finish line of, holy heck, did I do it? Did Are you sure? And I'm checking with my husband, yeah. are you sure? Are you yeah. positive? Yeah, because that's the other thing, yep. your brain isn't working, so you don't know what you can exactly. trust, right? <laughs> exactly, yeah. yep. So um, I had been running with a bunch of friends from a, um, my running club. It's such a great, great supportive group of people out here. And almost everybody that was running that day from my running club qualified. And that was such a cool yeah. thing, knowing that we'd all be potentially going to Boston together and and then, then you wait, and you know, you've got the dreaded wait until September when you can actually register. And I knew going in, if you have a minute cushion, you're probably not going to make it. You got a two minute cushion, you got maybe a 50 50 ish kind of maybe three minute, you're, you're better. It's not, not official, but the, the cutoff, the acceptance time cutoff, you know, hasn't been that great. Um, but this year it was. And boy, I'll tell you, I, I got in by six seconds. <laughs> and yeah. all I can think of is all the moments during that race when I, it could have, would have, did yeah, something else. Right. What I, that's right. not a lot right. of time. Where six you, seconds. Yeah. You know? And I've I've been the other way where I've missed it by six seconds and and thought you know, maybe there was one water stop. If you didn't yeah. walk, you would have made it, right? Or could you have found yep. that in the last half mile? Of course, exactly, these were the yeah. This was back in the day where you could actually mail in a hard copy, and I still got in the race because there weren't that many people <laughs> who wanted to run it. So, <laughs> Very nice. <laughs> so I actually, uh, uh, yeah. That's awesome. So um, this is quite the journey for you. Yeah. If you look yep. at where you were five years ago and where you're going to be in two weeks, I mean, what are the top three things that you you take away from this, Stephanie? What did you oh learn from Oh, my gosh, top this? three. Um, only three things? Jeez. <laughs> Let's see. 
I learned what it was to be me. And I learned, and I guess how I would define that is I came into this process pretty low self-esteem, low confidence level. I wasn't heavy and sedentary for lack of not caring. There's, you got to get to the reason why you're heavy and why you overeat and all that in order to to um, experience success in a journey like this. I lost 90 pounds over the course of those uh, couple of years of doing the half marathons. That's part of what helped me get faster and faster. And so I think the things that drove me to be overweight, I was able to, along this journey of running, really kind of get to the bottom of and then learn who I was as a person on this planet and who I wanted to be and, and gain this tremendous level of confidence. And uh, yeah, I guess that, that would probably be the, you know, the number one thing. Gosh, what else? Yeah. So yeah, definitely. This is a journey of self-discovery for sure, so and, me, and still discovering. Me, yeah. Let me ask it in a different way, right? So let's say yeah. we're talking to somebody who is in your, you know, the shape you were in five years ago, or looking yeah. to find their path. What would you tell them? What would I tell them? To find something like running or something similar where you can find a passion or have a an emotional connection to the goal. Ultimately, again, you know, like I said, my goal was not to run the Boston Marathon when I first started running. My goal was just to run, but I had a very strong emotional connection as to why I wanted to run. And I think if you can find an emotional connection to something, ultimately a goal, um, you're going to achieve it much, not easier. This is not an easy journey by any stretch, but but it gives you something to fall back on when the days get rough and you don't want to do it anymore and you question why you're doing it when you've got something that is just driving that inner passion about why. Yeah, I think there's a positive feedback loop when you start seeing the progress and you start seeing the positive sure. impact because you start yep. to get a certain amount of pride. And it's not bad yes. pride, it's good pride, right? You get pride in Absolutely. yourself and pride in your community, and that drives you, right? That's Absolutely, yeah. It, it hooks you to a larger purpose than yourself and your goals, right? It does, so. it does, Yeah. Yeah, the other thing that I would probably say was probably one of the most important learning things for me and what I would also tell somebody else is is find the gratitude in it. When you're training, as you know, not every day is perfect. You don't have good runs every day. And you've got to just kind of figure out where the gratitude is for you. And that was an important piece for me when you're right about the pride and you're right about when you're seeing kind of win after win and, and you're moving in a direction that's really forward and positive and great. Not all days are perfect and not all days are easy. And there are days when I wake up and I'm tired and I'm headed toward a race goal that was grueling, but I know I can get it if I work hard. And some days I just head out the front door with nothing but just being grateful for the fact that I can run and do that. Yep, absolutely. And that's uh, something where you remind yourself all the time when you're having a bad workout, it's like, yeah, but I'm out here, right? Look yep. what I can do. Exactly. Look at all the gifts. I've, I've been doing this for 20, 30 years. Damn it, I'm blessed, right? Exactly, exactly. that's right. So uh, i got to move right. towards the exit, let you get on with your training today down there in beautiful Fantastic. Las Vegas. I'm grateful for your sharing your story with us. I think it's a great story. You should be proud of yourself. Yeah, thanks. Maybe, we'll, maybe if things go right, we'll bump into each other someplace uh, on Patriots Day weekend. That would be fantastic. I'd love that. Thanks so much. All right. Thank you very much. We'll talk to you later. Okay. Sounds good. Thanks. Okay. Bye-bye. Sometimes it takes a third party to tell us what we already know. Hope. Viktor Frankl is quoted often as saying, between stimulus and response, there is a space. And in that space is our power to choose our response. 
in our response lies our growth and our freedom. And I would argue that in that space lives our hope, our hope for redemption, for life, for the future. And Dr. Frankel's point was that even though we don't necessarily control our circumstance, we do control how we react to that circumstance. And his scientific views were uniquely formed in the arbitrary brutality of the Nazi concentration camps where he had to come to grips with not being in control of anything, but was able to transcend by owning his own responses. And we have a choice every day when we open our eyes what we're going to do with that day. We have a choice to make it the best day or let it slide by. And this is the ultimate version of hope. If you wake up, you get to choose. It's in your control. No matter what else is going on, regardless of what personal prison you may find yourself in, you get to choose. And this is not just by our actions. Actions are important, but too often action is co-opted by activity. It is also by making a choice about our emotions. Action without emotion is often held up as the pinnacle of societal success, but action in itself is neither good nor bad. Action is simply movement. It's energy applied. Action applied in this context is simply a way of moving away from the place you're in and potentially, potentially towards a better place. For action to become a positive force, it needs a vector. And a vector is what encapsulates direction and magnitude. Action applied without direction and magnitude is chaos. And chaos expends energy without getting anywhere. Emotion gives us the magnitude and the direction we need to make action into a positive force. That emotional state creates the intent that fuels our action. And the emotions, those are the things that we get to choose. It is the intent that informs the actions, and it is the emotions that inform the intent. You get your intent right, and you can focus all your force in the direction you need to travel. And this is what is so important about the fact that you get to choose your response. What it means is that you get to choose your intent. And there's nothing in circumstance that forces your choice. This choice of intent gives you the foundation for your actions. It becomes your purpose and your protection as you move towards something new or better. Because there will be resistance. Resistance is a tricky business. Resistance becomes stronger in relation to the magnitude of the force. And this means the harder you try, the stiffer the resistance will become. And this resistance will come from all directions and all forms. And there will be status quo resistance of inertia. There will be internal resistance of your own imagining. There will be physical and arbitrary resistance in this chaotic world. And I've got some great news for you. Your intent is immune to resistance. This intent cannot be dimmed by resistance. Your intent is the golden core that does not change. Regardless of success, failure, and movement, intent is constant. Intent is the bellwether to your journey. You get to choose intent. You can build your own intent. 
This is the first step. Intent overcomes fear. If we know and believe in why we are acting, then the fear of acting falls away. If we are acting true to our intent, there is no chance of real failure. The action itself aligns with the intent. The result, the outcome, is detached. The good news is that when we bring positive intent to our actions, it raises the probability of an outcome that aligns with that intent, so a positive outcome. Intent will begin to drive action. Intent can make action necessary. Once intent is known, the direction and magnitude of action becomes obvious. The actions taken will be much more focused and effective because they're aligned by the core of your intent. The actions taken will become much more focused and effective because they are aligned by the core of our intent. If our intent is true, our actions will be true. This is what people miss when they look around at the situation they are in and frantically ask, what should I do? And the answer is not what should you do, but how should you think? What is your intent? Start with your emotions and build your intent. The what to do will then become obvious, and you will have the fuel to do it with. And this is why I think there is always hope. There is no place so dark and broken in the human soul where you are robbed of your ability to choose how to think. The you in you always has the ability to think. And with that ability to think comes the choice of your emotions and your intent. And those emotions and that intent drive the actions that create a life. There is always hope. There is always the ability to choose your intent. And in doing so, you choose your life. Okay, now we're going to move you towards the exit, please. All right, my friends, you have hoped yourself with good intent through to the end of episode three. Oh, wait, episode four dash three, eight, four of the Run, Run, Live podcast. Next time we talk will be post-marathon. We should have something interesting to talk about. We'll see. Boston is always an adventure. And then I have to throw myself into ultra training for the Burning River 100 in July. I've been, I've been doing some, <laughs> some TV watching in my taper in the last couple of weeks. And I've been watching my way through a couple of shows on Netflix. The first one, I think I told you about already, is Altered Carbon. And this is a hard sci-fi series based on a very good hard sci-fi novel. And I, I would recommend reading the novel before you watch the series, though. The show sticks very closely to the novel's narrative, but in doing so, it becomes a bit of an insider game. And if you don't know the backstory of the universe, you might think it's some sort of weird soft porn snuff movie. So, yeah, read the novel first. So the universe, the conceit, is that humans have discovered alien technology whereby you can put yourself on a chip which means you can be reanimated or downloaded into any body or what they call sleeves, and few people suffer real death. And this leads to some tricky cultural problems when people can live forever. So I'm starting the second novel in the series as we speak. I'll tell you how that one is. Another one I've been working my way through is Peaky Blinders, which is about a gang in Birmingham, England, after the Great War. 
World War I, and it's, it's very well done. It's a bit like Boardwalk Empire. The characters are, are very compelling. And it occurs to me that this is sort of the embodiment of a clockwork orange set in the Roaring Twenties. And if you don't get that reference, Google it. Stanley Kubrick made this movie, a rendition of an Anthony Burgess novel in 1971. It was quite the cult classic. You owe it to yourself to watch it. You'll never listen to Beethoven's Ninth the same way again. This is uh, another one where this Peaky Blinders, where if you have a weak stomach for the Vinivin Vino or the ultraviolence, you might want to stay away. I myself found I was having murder dreams last night. So <laughs> be careful with what you dump into your head before you go to bed. But I'll give you a running-related slice of content that you can tap into as well. As part of the run-up to the Boston Marathon this year, the BAA is putting out a podcast. And so far, they have interviewed Boston winners Jack Fultz, Bill Rogers, Sarah Mae Berman, and also our friend, the race director, Dave McGilvery. Now... Sarah May, you may not recognize the name, but she won the race before women were even officially in the race. She won the race, I think, three times. And it's great to remember, with all the dynamics of women in society today and the current trials and tribulations, it wasn't that long ago that the maximum allowable distance for women to compete at was 200 meters. I know it seems absurd today, but that didn't change till the 1970s, so... It's worth a listen. Very inspirational. And these women, you know, they change the world. Like Stephanie is changing the world. Like we all can change the world by filling that moment between stimulus and response with our intent. And I'll see you out there. And then he thought that he just couldn't die. So Ned, he laughed so hard it made him Right. All right, okie dokie. Let's get this show on the road. Come on, computer, shut down. I don't need that background noise. Uh, it's working really hard at shutting down. It's not very successful, though. Well, I guess I will... Uh, oh, there it goes. All right. <clears throat> Lacing is... Uh, <clears throat> Racing is like 